Hello, all, and welcome to The Goddess Project. This episode is going to be about main ads. Uh, I'm very, very excited to be back with you guys. I know it has been a while since I've recorded anything, and so I've been going through some stuff personally, um, and it has been a little bit difficult to find the space um, and the time to record, and I guess the emotional work that it takes to record. And so I wanted to just let you know that I'm not totally gone, but it took me a little while to be here. And so I'm in Vancouver right now. I'm having a blast on Salt Spring Island. And I thought, hey, why not record? So today um, I'm going to talk about main ads. And I know that you might ask yourself, you know, what, what are main ads or are they really important? Um, and why, why are you having them as a sort of uh, a topic of interest? And I just want to share with you how fascinating main ads actually are. Now, if this is your first time or your first episode, I'm so excited to have you here. I've now used uh, the dreaded QR code so if you're watching it on YouTube, you can just scan your phone, uh, use your phone to scan while I'm talking here at this uh, beginning slide. So if you're new to this podcast, welcome, welcome, and please take the time to scan this code or join me on the Artemis uh, Center website. You can join me on um, Instagram, TikTok. You can support the Artemis Center and my research um, on Patreon, where we do, where I do some of the more uh, private personal discoveries. Uh, I also sometimes share an after the podcast short episode, uh, additional kind of work that doesn't make it on YouTube uh, or makes it on YouTube really late, like in a few months, that kind of stuff. And so if you're new, welcome. And if you have been with me since the beginning or since the beginning of season two or whenever, I just want to say thank you for your patience. Thank you for following me. And thank you so much for your feedback and your encouragement. It's it's really wonderful when people text me and say, you know, Carla, I spent the day listening to your podcast or watching your podcast or I started listening to this podcast and it just, you know, it really changed the way that I think about whatever the topic is, whether it's women, whether it's goddesses, whether it's the ancient world. And so, I mean, I cannot explain to you how amazing that is and how much support it gives me. So thank you for all of you as well. And for those of you that support me on Patreon, thank you. All the thank yous to all of you, because um, this Work is fun, but also it takes uh, some time and effort. Um, and uh, and having that support just makes it all worth it. So that being said, let's talk about main ads and why they are. Uh, why they are both fascinating and devastating. Um, and also... I want to talk about mainnets because I'm not sure that people really know about them. So I, when I first started any social media sort of aspects, I used to use the tag I mainnet 
you know, kind of like the iRobot, i whatever it was that trend. I don't know how many years ago. Um, but no one knew what Mainnet was. <laughs> so they would be like, what, what is this? And uh, Mainnet is a wild woman. A Mainnet is a woman, a raving woman. Literally, Mainnet means raving woman. Uh, but what we're going to talk about today is really a patriarchal perspective. So I'm going to go over, of course, some of the data, the primary source, the stories of Mainnet's. But as you know, we will try and look at it from a, a feminist perspective or a, a woman's perspective. And that will not be as misogynist is really the word. I was going to say destructive um, as mainnets have been passed down to us uh, in some of the classical texts. So without further ado, let's jump in. So let's talk about the raving ones, yeah? Let's talk about sort of the Dionysian raves. You know, it's funny when, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I went to a few raves. I had friends who loved to rave um, and my partner used to love to rave, but I was a kid that couldn't stay awake very long. Um, and so I would go to raves and everyone would party and I would find like a corner or a God, you know, help us a chair somewhere and I would fall asleep. Um, and then my friends would want to go to an after party and all these kinds of things. And so it's funny that we still call these um, massive productions and revelries. We still call them raves. Um, and we sort of this idea of raving, which is which has this implication of a madness, a wildness, an intoxication, which, of course, the main ads uh, did as the priestesses of Dionysus. They were intoxicated. They were wild. They were in the wilderness. They were really living their best lives. Um, and I think because of that. uh men uh, became suspicious of what do women do when they're all gathered together drinking some wine and dancing around trees. And so it then turned into stories of violence and destruction um, and, as we'll see, devastation. Um, and eventually they were forced out of women were no longer allowed to practice in the wilderness. So, uh, so let's begin. Let's begin at the beginning. So Maenads are the female followers of Dionysus. Dionysus has male and female followers, but we're going to follow, we're going to focus on the female followers. Um, and the most significant number members of the Theasis. Uh, the Theasis is basically the gods' uh, companions or entourage. Entourage is a great word. So they were the entourage of Dionysus. And their name, like I said, literally translates into the raving one. Uh, main ads are also known as the Bacchae or the Bacchants, which we're going to see. This is in Roman mythology. After, of course, the Dionysus equivalent of in Rome, which is Bacchus. Yeah. And they wear, we're going to talk about what the, the clothes they wear and the staffs that they hold. Yeah. Uh, often main ads were portrayed as uh, in a state of ecstatic bliss or ecstatic frenzy. Um, which came out of a combination of intoxication and dancing. Now, I want to tell you, oof, I want to tell you a personal story, <laughs> but we might be here for a little bit long um, because I, okay, let me tell it to you in short. I once participated in a dancing journey or a dancing vision quest. 
which came after a long day of sitting by a tree in the freezing cold. So a lot of a long day of extremes. Um, and I think that was the same day that we did the sweat lodge. Don't quote me. I can't remember anyway, but it was a day of extremes. And then um, we ate a lot of food and we came together and then we danced. We were blindfolded and we danced and it was and, and sort of, so when you're blindfolded, you don't get to see other people dancing. So you don't feel as self-conscious and just moving with the music. And it was beautiful music and just, just, it's just beautiful. Anyways, the point of that is that it became an ecstatic, I don't like the word frenzy because frenzy implies uh, violence or aggression. And it was nothing like that. It was ecstatic, I think is a better word in the sense that it was just pure joy. And the guide, our dancing guide also took us through a meditation. And in this meditation, we had to go down to the underworld. It was a Persephone weekend. And I had the most powerful vision the the i lost myself in the vision um and i was so in the vision that when the guide took us back so now you're saying goodbye you're leaving the underworld you can slow down you can then sit down you know we're kind of walking it backwards i had a hard time coming back like a really hard time like i I didn't want to sit down. And then when I sit down, I had to like keep breathing into myself. Like I am Carla. I am in the body. I am Carla. I am back in the body. I am here. You know, it was just incredible. And so I, and there was no wine involved. Actually, there was nothing involved, literally nothing. We had just eaten a very vegan meal uh, and water, you know, like a very cleansing um, day. And so I can only imagine the journeys that these women would have taken if they're in the wilderness, away from men. So, you know, especially in this time when they needed that freedom, drinking wine freely and dancing to the beat of the drums and the beat of other, you know, other like the lyre and other uh, instruments. The, the intoxication is not so much the wine, but the freedom and the dancing and all of that combined. What an incredible celebration for women. You know, I could see why Maynads uh, practiced often. <laughs> I could see why they might have come back to their husbands, fathers, whatever brothers changed in some way, happy in particular. Um, I could see why they would gain independence like that feeling of I am enough, I am joy, I am powerful, actually the feeling of power, especially from the wilderness. So I can see why this is threatening to men is really the bottom line. I can see why they would be suspicious because men, and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit off topic here off my notes, but men when they go out and have their own vision quests and their own revelries and their own drinking and dancing, particularly, um, I want to say white patriarchal men, but it's not fair because the Mediterranean is not necessarily sort of all white or Caucasian or Anglo or however that is identified. So, but men... In this time, let's say, I think it's more fair to say that the men of this time of classical Greek, a little bit pre and a little bit post, 
um, would have celebrated that way with some kind of aggression. So there might've been wrestling or there might even be like drunk fighting, or there might be sort of, um, something, something that is, um, a little more violent or so they thought the Greek men who were writing at the time certainly thought that this type of party, this type of rave would induce violence. And so what this tells us really is the male gaze and the male gaze sees this type of partying leading to violence. The loss of control to men means violence. And so they really projected that onto the main ads um, and saw them in this violent way. So the notes that I have here, I want to make clear that while there is some validity to the work, there is, and the, and the data, it's all the male gaze. And I'll probably say that over and over and you know me, but I, it, it's important. It's important. And I find it more and more frustrating that we don't have female documentations of this, of anything, really, of anything that women did. What did women do? Um, all that we really have is male uh, interpretation or secondhand learning or whatever it is um, of the events. And so I want us to keep that in mind always because the male gaze is very different. Yeah. So the term mena then has come to be associated with a wide variety of women and includes like supernatural, mythological groups, historically, um, wild women, women of the woods, warrior women, that kind of stuff, but particularly associated with the worship of Dionysus. So we can't forget that Dionysus plays a key role here. And because he's the God of wine, because he's the God of wildness, um, and ironically, because he's also a half human, half God, which is fascinating, um, or a God, no, a God with a human mother, that is more correct to say, um, there is something uh, exotic about him to the other Olympic gods. You know, there's something different about him. Um, and he often feels left out. Um, moving on. Um, so the main ads that are the, the followers of Dionysus uh, are often shown in ecstasy, uh, dancing with each other. As you can see in these images, if you're listening to me on Spotify, these are women um, images of um, women that are half naked, dressed in animal furs, dancing in the woods, wildly, wildly in the woods, um, singing. Um, but they were also said to have indulged in something called omophagia, which is the eating of raw flesh of wild animals. Now, how true is this? I don't know. Did they perhaps hunt uh, and eat that food? Uh, while they were partying, I mean, someone had to get the food, right? It's not like you can just go in the wilderness and be like, yes, I picked this rabbit. So it's going to come to me. I'm going to eat it. So was there hunting involved? As we'll see, the stories that the men tell is that they found animals and ripped them apart. You know, they found deer and ripped them apart. They found lions and jaguars and bears and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And ripped them apart and they just kind of bit into them wild. And I don't want to give you an, an inaccurate image in the sense that I don't want to give you my bias, but I do like to think about things a little bit logically, which is, I mean, it's not so easy to catch an animal in the woods. 
<laughs> someone has to figure out how to do that or someone has to bring an animal uh, to the woods. Um, and I don't know, perhaps they brought uh, a deer. I don't know, weird. But anyways, they were said to have practiced this omophagia, which is their eating of the raw flesh of wild animals. So they didn't bring goats. They didn't bring chickens, right? There's this kind of idea. Uh, the manides and the bacchides, which is the same word, um, would swirl around. Uh, they would take off their clothes off and they would dance naked. Um, they had all of these sort of... Um, interpretations. Now, there's a German uh, philologist, Walter Friedrich Otto, who writes, the Bacchae of Euripides. So Euripides writes a play called the Bacchae. So again, Greek dude, very famous, very good dude. Uh, but um, his, his opinions of women is a bit interesting. So he writes a play called the Bacchae, which is really great. And if you ever get the chance to see it, you should go see it with that knowledge that it's written by a man who has never been to uh, to a celebration, to a rave. So the Bacchae of Euripides gives us the most vital picture of the wonderful circumstance in which, as Plato says in the Ion, another piece of writing, the God-intoxicated celebrants, women, draw milk and honey from the streams. They strike rocks with their thyrsus, their thyrsus, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is their sticks, and water gushes forth. Um, they lower the thyrsus to the earth and a spring of wine bubbles up. If they want milk, they scratch up the ground with their fingers and draw up the milky fluid. Honey trickles down from the thyrsus. Thyrsus, I hope I'm saying that right, made of the wood of the ivy. They gird themselves with snakes and give suck to fawns and wolf cubs as if they were infants at the breast. Wow. Fire does not burn them. No weapon of iron can wound them. And the snakes harmlessly lick up the sweat from their heated cheeks. Fierce bulls fall to the ground, victims to numberless tearing female hands and sturdy trees are torn up by the roots with their combined effort. Like, like, wow. Right. You're all like, just wow. Um, there is, this seems like supernatural, incredibly powerful, undefeatable women. <laughs> They're living the dream, right? Living the dream. Um, of course, that feels threatening to men. And you can imagine how Euripides' play was Euripides' very famous play, right? Many people went to go see his play and how this rumored occurrence um, would start catching fire, right? Catching uh, popularity, um, having... Uh, mystery and fear, yeah, attached to them. Um, so that's really, really fascinating. Um, what's also really fascinating is that the depiction in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s of the bad, that, that, that they were really a, actually 1600s, even 1500s, the Bacchae or the Bacchans or the Maenads, either way, whenever you see these two words, they're interact um, interchangeable. They became to be the men artists, male artists were very fascinating with this idea. And so they began to draw and paint them in, in numerous ways. And I really love this example of uh, 1853, the Bacante, 
by Jean-Leon Jerome. You can Google that if you've never seen it or if you're not watching here, but it's basically a young woman with the ram horns. And now I know we talked about the horn goddess repeatedly, um, and uh, it's still a fascination for me how wildness is depicted with horns. It's, 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 uh, yeah, fascinating is a good word because it's, there's something about horns, antlers and horns on women that viscerally, uh, start something in us. Uh, for men, maybe one thing, for women, maybe another thing, but it represents wildness. It represents sort of a, a human-animal combination. It, it takes us through um, all of these. It, it gives, it does something to us. We, we automatically see and understand wildness, yeah? Um, and because cultic revelers of Dionysus were characterized by this maniacal dancing, crashing symbols, um, screaming, of course, drinking, loud dancing, spinning and spinning and spinning into greater and greater ecstasy. Um, the goal we are told of these women was to reach a state of ecstasy or enthusiasm in which their souls would be temporarily freed from their bodies and they were able to commune with the God and have a glimpse of eternity or divinity. Um, and so we are told by different scholars that the right, this, these, these rights climaxed uh, in, a in, a in this performance of the feats of strength, which Otto uh, was talking about earlier, which things like uprooting trees and tearing a bull apart uh, with their bare hands and eating uh, animals and their flesh raw. Um, this idea of the sacrament. Okay, so, I mean, I have not done a an episode on Dionysus uh, because there's just so much to say about him. I did talk about Ariadne and Dionysus, but I want you to, I just want to make this connection for you that Dionysus is a suffering God he is very much the the predecessor of Jesus in the sense that he dies and is reborn often I mean, in the spring around Easter time. Um, he is a God, a male God with a female human mother and a father, of course, Zeus. Uh, and he's, he had, you know, wine and drink, wine and food is his sacrament. Um, and the Maenads who drank the wine and ate the flesh are very much um, an echo that predates the Christian sacrament of the Eucharist. So this idea that, I mean, it's a very violent image for the um, uh, for the Maenads, not as violent, of course, for the Eucharist for Christians, but this idea that you tear something from the flesh and you eat it as a sacrament to the God is very, very closely related to, you know, a few thousand years later, a couple of thousand years later, when, um, or a thousand years later, when um, Christians eat the flesh of their God and drink the wine of his blood. It is very, like, so this, the, the Eucharist uh, ritual of Christians harkens way back uh, to these Dionysian rites of the Maenads. So like just thinking of that is 
right? It blows your mind. Just thinking of that connection is enlightening, I think. Um, and so this, by eating this, by doing this communion with the God, by drinking the wine and eating the flesh, these, the uh, revelers would be symbolically um, possessed by Dionysus, which which if you grew up Catholic or even Christian, but for me who grew up Catholic, when you go up to the church, well, when you go up to the altar and the priest gives you the communion, they no longer give you the wine, but they give you the wafer. You are supposed to go back to your seat, right? And imagine uh, Jesus entering your body. I mean, that sounds really terrible, but spiritually <laughs> entering your body, like, uh, so there is this ingestion aspect of it and the entering of, of the God into your body. This is, so there's a kind of possession, like an openness to possession. I mean, it's not like an exorcism or something like that, but it, there's this idea that in sharing the flesh and the blood of Christ, you are then somehow possessed by his goodness, let's say, or his salvation or whatever you want to put in there whatever you want to say there. Um, and in the same way, the main ads are symbolically eating the blood, drinking the blood wine and eating the flesh of animals, whether it's raw or not, who the heck knows. Um, and sort of being, uh, being in this frenzy and becoming one with the God. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, how that works. And then it's fascinating how, the horns play such a key, key role. Now, we haven't really talked about Dionysus. And like I said, I won't go too deep into him because he's just such an incredible divinity. And I would like to do, um, do him the justice of his story. <laughs> I haven't done, I haven't worked on too many male gods, uh, mostly because I'm not as interested, but I have been thinking about doing a series on some male gods because there's so much to say about them as well. And Dionysus is one of them. So he, his story is fascinating. Okay. So he was nursed by um, nymphs and maenads. Um, so he, the God, okay. So the God Dionysus, I'm oh, sorry. The God Hermes is said to have carried a young Dionysus to the nymphs of Nisa. Now you remember that Dionysus has that story where um, Zeus, sorry, Hera is looking for Selene, who is his mother, and um, she's pregnant. And she tells uh, Selene that, uh, ask Zeus to show his real self to you. Uh, you might you might know the story and uh, you haven't really seen his real self, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and Selene is pregnant and... Um, she goes to Zeus and says, I, I want to see your real form. And he says, no, you can't see my real form because you're human. You'll die, blah, blah. She goes, no, no, I really want to see it. Anyway, Zeus, because he supposedly loves her, mm, um, he shows himself in his real in his real godly form and she burns up, right? Um, and as she's doing that, he grabs the baby from her womb and wraps it into his thigh, uh, which this is Dionysus, and, which, and then the baby sort of comes to term in his thigh and, and is born. Um, this story has so many layers of complication because once again, here's another story of another dude who wants to pretend that he gave birth 
And uh, Zeus likes to pretend that he gives birth to children. He pretends he gives birth to Athena. He's pretending that he's giving birth to Zeus, uh, to Dionysus. Anyways, because of this, because Dionysus is a god, interestingly, but has a human mother, he's always sort of like an outcast, you know, and he always feels a bit outcast. Sorry, his mother's name is Semele, not Selena. I have Selena on my mind. Um, and there are a couple of myths about this birth either way. So there's another myth, for example, when his mother, so one myth is that Hermes takes him when he's born and takes him to the nymphs of Nisa. The other nymphs is that the other myth is that when Semele is killed, um, the care of Dionysus falls into her, into the hands of his sister. So he has sisters, Ino, Agave, and Atenoe. And they are later depicted as the first to participate in the rites and taking the leadership role among Maenads. Okay. So um, the his retinue, his entourage starts at uh, with the women that are nursing him. And then Dionysus uh, travels to his birthplace. He returns to his birthplace, which is Thebes. He's born in Thebes. And Pentheus, who is his cousin there, um, or his, and, and nor Pentheus, nor his mother Agave, um, or just his aunt, uh, acknowledge his divinity. So again, like I said, Dionysus always has this weird sort of, he's always seen a bit as an outcast. Um, and we'll talk about what happens to Pentheus because it's my favorite thing in a minute, but from Thebes. So he goes to Thebes and he's not acknowledged there by his cousin or by his aunt, which is weird because his aunt knows Samela and the whole story, but Okay. Then from Thebes, Dionysus goes to Argos, uh, where all the women except the daughters of King Proetus joined his worship. And those who did not join his worship, he punished by driving them mad and they killed their infants who were nursing at their breasts. So Dionysus is also known for his wrath. Um, and then he does the same to other daughters of Minas, for example, in Boeotia and other places where um, whoever didn't join his his entourage, I didn't want to join his entourage. He makes them either tear animals apart, tear babies apart, tear people apart. And we're told, according to Opian, who is an, an ancient scholar, that Dionysus himself delighted as a child in tearing kids into pieces and bringing them back to life again. And he's often characterized as the raging one, the mad one. And so he has this sort of sadistic, um, he loves to turn people into things and then turn them back. And so the nature of the Maenads then comes from his nature. Uh, but I want you to think about um, not just the idea that he's tearing things apart and putting them back together, but more about the idea that this is a God that has control over life and death, and he's a very feared God. And so I don't want you to think of Dionysus necessarily as like a psychopath kind of God um, who only delights in that. I think that that is part of the fear writing. And of course, most gods have a lot of fear writing in the sense of that humans are meant to be feared of him, but because Dionysus and others, but because Dionysus is often sort of dismissed as a divinity by other gods, not by humans, his stories are fantastically, um, extreme it's lots of extremes yeah. we're told for example that once during a war in the middle of the third century bce 
The entranced Maenads lost their way and arrived in Amphisa, which is a city near Delphi. And there they sank down exhausted in the marketplace and were overpowered by a deep sleep. The women in Amphisa formed a protective ring around them. And when they woke, arranged for them to return home unmolested. Okay. And so there is this... Um, There are also stories of, how do I say this? There are also stories of protection, of love, of care, of support. And I think it is in, the, in a little glimpse like that where other women notice the maenads as they stand out, come and protect them so that no man will molest them while they're sleeping or take advantage of them while they're sleeping is such an honor code among women that it makes me believe that the stories about the aggression or the violence are, of course, make-believe, yeah? At least that's my my bias, <laughs> right? Uh, there is no way to really uh, prove anyone right or wrong because there obviously we have no evidence whatsoever other than... Um, the writing of men and some um, artifacts, who, who of course we don't know who made who made them. So we have some um, reliefs, we have some um, paintings, we have frescoes with some maenads on them, uh, and then of course uh, we have all of the last thousand years of paintings, which doesn't really count because obviously um, this is a much later inspiration. So I'm going to lean towards the fact that we have small stories like this, and this is one of several in which other women protect maenads, in which women willingly go and become maenads. Um, there seems, that to me seems to speak of um, uh, things not being as terrible as um, the authors describe, yeah. Um, there are lots of so uh, there are lots of references to the priestess of Dionysus. Later references uh, in the third century BCE, as I said, um, there was uh, Asia Minor wanted to create a Maenadic cult of Dionysus, and the Delphic Oracle bid them to send to Thebes for both instruction and three professional Maenads. Um, and so the Oracle, the Delphic Oracle, said, "Go to the holy plain of Thebes." So that you may get Maenads who are from the family of Eno, daughter of Cadmus. So there was a time when um, the, the popularity of this cult was so uh, popular, <laughs> a widespread, that um, people wanted to set up uh, Maenadic cults everywhere. So, and this is about third century BCE. So we are talking about, you know, 2,500 years ago, um, but not that long ago um, in the sense that this cult lasted for quite, quite some time and really reached its peak in the third century BCE. And then as we'll see, sort of got dismissed later on um, by the Romans. Okay. So let's talk about the symbols the symbols of power of female empowerment. So maenads are very clearly depicted. Um, and so I have here three images of maenads. And as you can see, they are very, very much the same depiction. So one of the things that's really fun about this maybe is that whenever you now go to a museum or you see a piece of art, you will be able to really see a maenad 
right away and recognize a maenad right away. You can find them on vases or craters, which were wine casters. They have distinct clothing, hairstyles, and accessories. So let's talk about their hairstyle, which is my one of my favorites. They had their hair down. Yeah. So it's always loose hair. Like sometimes it could be pinned up a bit, but also like most of it down. So women having their hair down is a symbol of carefree mentality, of uh, non-restriction. You know, we can do a whole episode on the importance of women's hair and uh, especially women letting their hair down. Even that statement of women letting their hair down implies that there's going to be a party today, right? Like, I want to let my hair down this weekend. That means, you know, I'm going to be free and wild. So that saying harkens way back to a time when wild women freely went into the woods and let their hair down. Then they carry around this uh, thrissus, which I've mentioned before, and you could see in the image, uh, it is one of the most distinctive accessories. So um, it is a, it's made out of fennel, okay? And it is used to symbolize fertility and pleasure that is associated with the worship of Dionysus. But the most amazing part is that there is a pine cone placed on top of the thyrsus that is used to, to symbolize the spreading of the seed, okay? So, you know, ask yourself, why are these wild women in the forest carrying this pine cone? And, you know, what's really fascinating is, is recently, especially in conspiracy theories and other aspects like this, the pine cone has come to uh, symbolize the pineal gland. Uh, it has come to symbolize, again, the sort of supernatural concept of knowledge, awakening, beginning, all of these, I mean, this symbol is so powerful. And of course, fertility, especially the, of course, the open pinecone, uh, pine as you know, those are the ones that uh, dropped to the ground and fertilized the forest. And they have this pinecone um, at the top of their fennel staff. Um, and they shake this pinecone and they carry this pinecone. And it's sort of the symbolism that these are the women that fertilize the wild, that fertilize life. And so I find it really fascinating that they would also tear apart animals and eat them raw. And I don't want to say they wouldn't, because again, in the ancient world and in, and in life, uh, creation and destruction are very, very closely related. Life and death are very, very overlapping. Um, and I think in our modern world, we we're very sensitive about like those two things overlapping. But it is kind of interesting that they are, if they were to eat the flesh of raw animals, that they're also carrying this distinct piece of accessory that is about life giving, life birthing and seeding the world. They also um, wear a fawn skin dress or panther. So you will often see them wear either sort of like a, reminds me of like those uh, Fred Flintstones kind of uh outfits of that the, the sort of jaguar panther um so they they sometimes are are either covered in fawn or like deer skins or panther skins and this really is supposed to represent their wildness um and it's sort of draped around the neck and and down over the gown and this really um emphasizes their wildness emphasizes uh, their 
connection to nature, but also hmm, the the embodiment of nature is probably a better a better word. That once you put on this piece, you you are wild. You are one with the wilderness. Um, you you are embodying the wild. Uh, they also have a snake crown, and this is quite uh, quite uh, popular. Uh, they are depicted to eye to carry some kind of snakes wrapped around their heads. Sometimes, as you can see in one of these images, they have a snake wrapped around their hand, so like a, a snake a snake bracelet. Um, you you know we've done so much talking, and if you haven't listened to any of my podcasts on snakes or snake women, please do. There's so much um, power in snakes for women. There's so much um, knowledge and connection and wisdom in the relationship between women and snakes and then later of course as as you might know with Janet with the story of Genesis that relationship is purposely destroyed uh with Eve and the serpent in the garden um and so I hope that if you're listening you've been listening to me for a while you you can see how powerful snakes were for women and perhaps how important it was to break that relationship uh, where today in this day and age, women fear snakes, uh, which really is a, meta a beautiful metaphor for the fact that we fear our own wisdom, knowledge, power. Um, we have been taught to be afraid of ourselves, of an, our true power. And lastly, uh, maenads are depicted with bare feet. Yeah, both, both in text and in legend. They would have been barefoot. Now I found I saw this really incredible TikTok recently that talks about the fact that we that when we walk barefoot on the land, on grass, on whatever, there are electrical impulses from the ground that come up through our feet. And you might know, I don't know if you guys are into this, but I've been fascinated with this idea that. There's this, there, someone was saying that the worst thing they ever did to us, I think indigenous, someone in the indigenous community had said, one of the grandmothers, the worst thing they ever did to us is um, cover our feet because feet are the sensors of our body and the sensors of the world, of course, around us. But I saw this really great scientific sort of explanation that electrical impulses from the earth go up through your feet and then go through your body and your back and your brain. And that this uh, a lot eases like things like pain, eases stress. And so they were recommending every day you should walk barefoot in the grass 20 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, as long as you can. And I find it fascinating that the reference to wildness and the reference to freedom is about bare feet. Now, I know that this, of course, also harkens back for the Greek to the sort of savagery. And I say that in quotation marks, the idea that the uncontained, the uncontrolled is barefoot in the wild. So I know that um, so-called civilized communities try to savagize, it's not a word, uh, other communities that walk around barefoot. But the truth of it is, is that that is our most natural and connected um, self. And so uh, the wild women of Dionysus knew this and practiced this. Uh, wild women, wild parties. Yeah, moving on. Now, um, one, of, one of the interesting uh, collections uh, of art 
and vases often have um, maenads associated with centaurs. And maenads and centaurs are seen in the most sort of um, compromising positions. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that these, you know, virginal, and by virginal, I don't mean uh, a hymen virgin, but more like a, a woman that is dedicated to the God and only the God spent a lot of time dancing on the mountain, all this kind of stuff, but also perhaps may have engaged uh, in the, <laughs> the wildness of having sex with centaurs or being seduced by centaurs or having sort of orgiastic parties with centaurs. And of course, centaurs are half man, half horse. And so they are also worshipers of Dionysus and also part of his entourage. And so they are, um, the God would not have seen this as a transgression. He would not have seen this as, um, in fact, he would have encouraged and enjoyed the orgiastic aspects of this. Um, and so could you imagine if you were an Athenian male living a very, very conservative life, uh, the idea that your wife or sister or whatever is uh, in the woods during the Dionysi Dionysic rites uh, performing not just a wine drinking party raving, but perhaps even enjoying the company of centaurs. Um, of course, you would have seen this as a threat. Of course, you would have seen this as um, uh, what's the word? Sort of an imposition on your own control over these women. Uh, and so the very act of partying for women, the very act of letting go, letting loose, the very act of having casual sex um, and eating. You know, it's interesting because, and I'm sorry, I'm side, I'm side noting here. It's interesting because eating for women was a real issue, especially for Athenian women. They were on a very strict diet uh, because they were supposed to be a certain weight. And they thought, you know, uh, the men that recommended these diets were limited in their education. Um, and so they, um, there's a comparison uh, I think it's by Livy, but don't quote me, where he talks about the difference between um, Spartan women's food consumption and Athenian women's food consumption and how Athenian young girls were not fed enough. They were given half the rations of a man and blah, blah, blah. And so they died in childbirth and they had all these issues or couldn't get pregnant, whatever. But the reason I bring that up is that it's fascinating to me that the maenads were freely eating and drinking so it almost makes me feel like in some cases, although not all the main ads in all the Mediterranean, but in some cases, there might have been a real, a real hunger, a real physical need to eat food because you're not really being fed uh, the quantities of food that you would want to have. Um, and so that just came to me now when I'm thinking about this, this um, obsession that the male authors have with the fact that they ate things and that they became so strong to lift or uproot trees or whatever. So there's this sort of um, 
fear that these dainty women become fed enough with the God, with the wine, with the, let's say, raw meat or whatever it is, protein, that they could uproot trees, you know? So I just thought of that now. And I thought, you know, this could have been a real issue for some of these women where they really couldn't, they really were hungry or starving uh, for food. So speaking of tearing things apart, I'm going to tell you two stories um, of two famous examples um, in ancient or classical plays and um, ancient stories of Maenads. One of Orpheus who dies, well, they both die, and one of Pentheus. (laughs) No man survives a Maenad party uh, where they shouldn't be to begin with. Uh, But let's start with um, Orpheus. So one of the most famous instances of asparagamos, which asparagamos, which is uh, this idea of tearing apart um, and um, yeah, tearing flesh apart, tearing uh, living things apart is Orpheus. So as you know, Orpheus is the great bard or the great musician whose music made Hades and Persephone weep, but whose dulcet voice was drowned out by the uh, screams and singing of the Maenads in Bacchanalian ecstasy. I love this sentence. Yeah, Bacchanalian ecstasy. We need to have a rave called that, ladies. Um, They were, so while he was singing, they were unmoved and they didn't hear his voice and they attacked him and they dismembered him. They ripped him apart. Okay, um, creating a mythic topos expressing the fear of poets that is still alive in Milton's Lysiads and beyond. So <laughs> basically it's this idea that uh, if you're a performer, you know, this idea that if you're not a very good performer, um, you could be metaphorically torn apart, right? Or, you know, when we talk about critics tearing into Uh, a film or tearing into an actor or tearing into a person that very much comes from this idea or this memory or this myth, of course, of Orpheus being torn apart by people who could not hear his art and were not listening. Right. Um, The main ads murder of Orpheus comes after he chooses the worship of Apollo rather than Bacchus or Dionysus. And so Apollo and Dionysus are always in contention. Um, they are, they don't get along. Often they don't get along. And Dionysus is always, because like I said, because he has this sort of insecurities around being a real God or the real son of Zeus or blah, blah, blah. Um, he's not happy at losing people, especially someone like Orpheus to Apollo. Uh, so as, as punishment, that is one of the story, one of the explanations is that this is the punishment uh, by being pursued by the Maenads and dismembered by the Maenads. And there is a legend that says that Orpheus's head, although ripped from his body, continued to sing and together with his lyric floated to Lesbos. And there the oracle of Orpheus was established and the rest of his limbs were later gathered and buried by the muses. <laughs> so just that image of this you know, Orpheus's poor head floating on the water along with his instrument, still singing until he arrives to the island of Lesbos. And there he's put together um, and buried is, is fascinating. So 
this idea that um, the Maenads are weapons of Dionysus, that he um, he weaponizes the frenzy or rage or raving of women, of wild women, is also quite frightening. And the fact that they tear a man apart really is, speaks to the fear that men have of women, um, especially wild, raving women. Yeah. And so um, it's really fascinating that we see this dismemberment um, of Orpheus. Okay. So now moving on to my favorite, which is the dismemberment of Pentheus. Now, I mentioned, mentioned Pentheus to you earlier. So Pentheus is the cousin of um, uh, Dionysus, and he is human. So Agave, who is the sister of Semele, is uh, this, uh, has this child, Pentheus. And Pentheus becomes king. Yeah. Again, this is part of the Euripi Euripides' tragedy, the Bacchae. So it is neither... It is neither fact um, and it is not, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to say that it is not part of a primary text, but that's a tough one because the play in itself is a type of primary text, but it is, this play is created for entertainment. So we have to be really careful at what we pull out of plays and what we pull out of even you know ancient writings, we always have to stand behind the author. And so, what is Euripides' intention? Well, you know, he wants to be famous, and his he wants his place to be famous, and he wants to win competitions and etc. But the fact that his topic is, and he's a very popular playwright of his time, um, the fact that his topic is interesting and sort of sells and is easily marketable tells us that the audience is interested in the concept of maenads and the cult of maenads and in the macabre aspects of wild women or raving women, right? So this play is written about 405 BCE. It's a classical Greek period and describes the tragic death of King Pentheus and the dangers, the dangers associated with the worship of Dionysus uh, because the maenads, as you'll see, end up murdering Pentheus. Now, Pentheus's attitude towards the women who worship Dionysus in this play. Uh, the idea of male displeasure towards women in the Bacchic rituals is expressed deeply here. Pentheus does not um, like Dionysus and he does not like women having the freedom to, to party. So actually in the play, uh, Pentheus enters a room where Cadmus and uh, Tiresias are and they're uh, his... Uh, colleagues, let's say. And Pentheus says to um, both of them, he's talking about Maenags, and he says, um, I hear I hear about the disgusting going, things going on here in the city, women leaving home to go to silly Bacchic rituals, cavorting there in the mountain's shadows, right? God forbid. Um, and so he, Pentheus in the play bans the worship of Dionysus. He bans Maenads. Um, and he has this idea that a respectable woman's place is in her oikos, in her home. She has to busy herself with domestic matters. Um, and this is sort of the feeling of many men at the time um, where they don't want women outside of the home, right? Um, this idea that um, 
women must manage the household. And if the wife is not managing the household, the whole household falls apart. Okay. So there was a great deal of misogyny towards women who left their house for anything. Okay. Athenian and Theban women um, were to stay home and weave in their households. And they were, of course, there to nurture their, their children and their husbands and all that kind of stuff. While maenads are wild women living outside of the patriarchy, living outside of the control of um, men and living free, right? So there's a poem called Women by um, Simonides, where he talks about women uh, who are always gossiping and at the center of attention. And, and it's really a misogynist poem that he also talks a lot about how um, maenads or wild women are the reason for uh, everything collapsing. You know, the patriarchy is collapsing because women are participating in this, these exotic dances or in the rites of Dionysus. Um, and so maenads challenge the patriarchy, right? They challenge not only their wildness, but their exoticness and their eroticness challenges this. And so this play by Euripides is, um, you know, I can't tell, Euripides has an interesting sense of humor. He writes a lot about, a lot of plays about women. The, uh, the Trojan women, for example, is another one that I really love. Um, and I can't tell it where Euripides sits or stands on women. Is he sort of a misogynist? I wouldn't say he's a misogynist, but you know, it, is he is he sort of a feminist? An early whatever would have been identified as a feminist back then. I can't tell. In this play, he really, um, I can't tell if he's really sort of happy that Pentheus ends up dying this horrible death, or if he's, or if it's a warning. Um, so, um, King Pentheus is. Um, upset that his mother is a, a maenad, right? And she be, so she becomes a maenad against her son's wishes. Um, and because she becomes a maenad, the god Dionysus puts her under his curse of madness, we're told. And it is in this madness that Agave ends up doing um, this heinous act. So they're in the wild, they are partying, they're reveling, they're blah, 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 they're drinking the wine, all these women, all of these maenads. And Pantheus is sneaking up on them to see what's going on. And I can't remember if he falls out of a tree or what happens exactly, but Dionysus sort of um, disguises him or turns him, I can't remember exactly, into a panther. And no, actually, no, he disguises him as a panther for the women. And so Agave thinks that this is a panther, you know, in the woods. And so all of the women begin to tear apart this panther, I say in quotation marks, in that, in that festival of tearing apart an animal and eating the flesh. And of course, it's Pentheus, her own son. And so... um Euripides explains it as a madness, right? Um, as a madness that is that comes over the women, particularly Agave, as a punishment 
because they denied him. Remember when Dionysus first came to Thebes, they denied him. Um, and Agave was part of that, but then she becomes a main ad. So the, uh, I, Dionysus is really holding a grudge. And it's it's really it's a really violent image of the women, especially Agave tearing apart her her son and then coming to awakeness, right? So Dionysus takes away her madness and she realizes what she's seen, right? Um and uh, the devastation that comes after that is quite hmm, what's the word? Is quite quite powerful for the play. Agave then realizes the error of her ways uh, as Cadmus clears her mind and helps him and helps her mind free from Dionysus. Um, and then he, Cadmus continues to help her cleanse her own mind and spirit and try and restore, because of course it is a crime. It is a family, a crime to kill your own son um, and the furies may be coming for you. Um, and, but she does, Cadmus helps her restore her soul and her spirit and all of this of like cleansing of this murder, really. Um, but Cadmus then is representing the norm of women cleansing their foreign influences of Dionysus. Yeah. So they, they see him as this sort of this foreign divinity. Um, and Cadmus uh, is is an example of how women should be um, behaving rather than the way that they're behaving. So there's this fear about when women leave home, they behave in an unnatural manner, in an un unnatural, I say that in quotation too. Um, and even though these festivals are sources of female empowerment run by women, for women, for men, these seem to be moments in which them leaving home, leaving their so-called domestic responsibilities cause such um, devastation that it makes even a mother kill her son, right? That they, there's, it is such a outrageous um, behavior to be independent, uh, to be, uh, wild to be free for women that it makes them kill their own son now there's a very interesting connection that i thought was very really fascinating the name pentheus is associated with sorrow uh, as in nepenthe which is an elixir with the power to take sorrow away so this there's an interesting biblical connection where like the serve the suffering servant of isaiah who Christians believe uh, is identifiable, identifiable with Jesus. Um, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs in Isaiah 53, uh, 3. So this idea of the sparagmus, this, this crucifixion, this tearing apart or crucifixion actually um, is really fascinating Um how do I say this? This idea that a man of sorrows, a man of sadness is torn apart or crucified uh, in the case of uh, the biblical text um, is an interesting connection. Yeah? Uh, and so Pentheus's name is uh, associated with sorrow. It's really, really fascinating. 
Um, or perhaps there's this metaphor that what the women are doing and tearing apart Pentheus is tearing apart their sorrow um, te or tearing apart the source of their sorrow, which is, of course, Pentheus as a king who is uh, established the law that no women should be wild or free. Really fascinating, fascinating um, consequences um, of the way that men, when in control, view and control the behavior of women and the freedom of women. And I don't think that there is a better example in history than the Maenads. Uh, they are really the witches. You know how we have the witches of Europe and the burning of the witches of Europe in the 1400s to the 1600s. Um, this, the, 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 the Maenads are the early supernatural women, the early wild women, the early women that did not obey the status quo with the patriarchy. And in fact, were seen as suspicious and powerful. So it's not a new story, but it's it's just, it's a devastating story because it just, it seems we have the same, it seems that we continue to have the same consequences. So let me tell you what happens in the end to the Maenads. We get to the Romans, yeah? Uh, and we now call them Bacchans, part of the Bacchanalia, not um, not Maenads anymore. And of course, the, instead of Dionysus, we now have Bacchus. So Bacchic women or Bassarids, uh, all titles of wild women. Okay. Um, this concept of the establishment of mania and this frenzied state. And like I said before, this idea that um, women would drink and dance and that there's wild yelling and screaming. Could you imagine all of these women freed for a weekend or a night or a week or whatever in the woods, screaming out their rage at the forest. Um, absolutely 100% necessary. But this kind of worship um, was then started to be called, instead of sort of Dionysic maenads, it started to be called the Bacchanalia of the Romans. When the Romans took over, as you know, they renamed a lot of things and they, um, but they continued practicing them. So according to Livy, who is a Roman um, author, the Bacchanalia festival was only open to women and lasted three days. Like I said, for us, it would be like a, a weekend. And this festival in Rome, so by the time we get to the Romans, which is, you know, almost a thousand years later, give or take, right? 500 to a thousand years later, the festival was held in strict privacy and the attendees were bound to secrecy. Again, the reason why we don't know what they did I would have loved for women to pass down something written. But as you know, it is very difficult for us to write something down, not having it being burnt or destroyed or seen as the devil's work. Um, and so, yeah, orally it was probably passed down, but once again, uh, we've lost that. Scholars believe that the Bacchanalia served two types of religious purpose. The first was as a public celebration and a platform for dramatic plays. So there was a lot of that, like in the city of Dionysia, and the second purpose, of course, was this release and revelry through this frenzied ritual. So the Romans and the Roman women continued to practice this wild, wild um, celebration of freedom. However, however, by 1980s, oh, sorry, by 1986, 
By 186 CE, the Roman Senate became suspicious, in quotation marks, of the Bacchanalia Festival and believed, conveniently, that the attendees, the women, were planning a revolt. Perhaps they were, who knows. As a result, legislation was introduced which brought the Bacchanalia under the control of the Senate. Once again, the men in power took control. This led to a complete restructuring of the cult. Henceforth, cult members had to seek Senate permission to practice any Bacchanalian rites. And this changed, of course, the entire flow, ritual, festival, because now you had to ask for permission to be free. Um, and so women had to ask for permission to be free and to celebrate something that they had been celebrating for all, you know, for a thousand years, if not more. And so I call this section here, if you can see, you, if you're watching, it says, Romans ruin all the things. <laughs> oh, and I'm very, very sorry to my, I apologize for my Roman ancestors because I have many. But in this case, um, it is absolutely the case that once control, after 186 CE, once control of this festival went into the hands of the Roman Senate, which of course was all made by rich uh, patriarchal men, um, the festival, the, the celebration either went underground, uh, of which we have no record, but there's sort of suspicion that women, when they go into the woods, they do something wild. Um, but certainly it stopped having any real effect, you know, it stopped having any real, real wildness uh, and any real independence for women. Um, and so today we are in a place where, you know, one of the most common things for me has been that women want to travel and uh, we do retreats. And um, I have been invited to lecture at retreats and I have been invited to create workshop at retreats more and more in the last year or so. I mean, this year, I think I'm doing four or five of them just in the summer. Um, and the, every time I join one of these festivals, most of them are exclusive to women or anyone who identifies as a woman. Um they have been really, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, certainly we don't tear animals apart or the women there don't do that. <laughs> certainly it's not quite like that, but, but I can feel a, um, more and more of a thirst or a need for a separate space, for a space that is for women, by women, um, for a space that is in nature and for a space that has both spirituality so there's level of meditations and connection and energy and vibration and also some partying and some dancing you know i was at this goddess conference uh just a couple of weeks ago and uh in the clothes you know this was a sort of an academic slash artist conference so there was lots of presentations of paper and things like that but the last dinner included some poetry writing some singing and dancing and just that natural getting up and getting in a circle and dancing around in this conference room with women while, while other women were singing or sort of engaging us in the singing as well. 
just that alone was so powerful. And it's one of my favorite memories of the conference, even though the conference has so many beautiful writings and papers. It's one of my favorite um, memories of that. And it really like, it felt like it harkened back. Like we just so naturally came together and got up and danced at women of all ages and of diverse background. And um, yeah, it was really lovely. And so I can only imagine what the future has in store for us if we can begin practicing those independent and free and um, frenzied or ecstatic um, celebrations in the wild. And so I hope that there's more of that to come. Um, and so that is it for me for, for this episode, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, coming along with me on this uh, ride. I have up here, if you're on Spotify, my podcast channel on YouTube, uh, please feel free to subscribe and share with your friends and share with others and let me know what you think. Uh, as always, feel free to contact me. All of my social media stuff is on the side there. If you want to join me online and on this um, journey to the goddess and this continued project uh, to bring back, uh, to revive and reconstruct um, goddess worship and goddess knowledge and goddess wisdom. So thank you so much. I hope you have the best day, morning, afternoon, night, whenever you're watching this. And I will see you next time on the Goddess Project.